Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today I'm lucky to have Chris Slaughter in the Light Pod studio. Chris has an epic career in the lighting industry. Some might call him a legend, or maybe that's just the CrossFit gym. But Chris graduated from the University of Colorado. Then he went to work for a lighting designer on the West Coast, came back to Denver, joined the think tank at Acuity Brands, known as the Luminar Concept Center, and he's now at a rep agency here. But his title isn't sales, quotes, or customer service. He's a lighting engineer, and he's working on developing automated and innovative products in the industry. Today, we're going to talk to Chris a little bit about, well, all that change that's happening in this industry and uh, what might not be around today could be around very soon tomorrow. Chris, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. We got to talk a little bit about your legend status in the CrossFit gym. I feel like I met you there at one point in time, but that's a big part of your life. You currently, no one can see you have an epic haircut that makes you look like a Viking because it was your Halloween costume for your two little kids. And your wife thought you looked so good and you just kept it going. I mean, what's everybody think of it these days? Uh, I get some weird looks. Yeah. There's, There's a little bit of like a hipster look to it, but uh, my wife braids the hair in, you know, like a French braid kind of style looks, looks pretty good, but no, it's a, yeah, it was funny. Like there's like a, you know, big Viking culture going on right now on like Netflix and and other stuff like that. And so I thought it'd be a good Halloween costume and then hadn't had a changed haircut in like five years. So I decided to keep it. Well, in case you don't know, Chris, he likes to look like a Viking, but he is also super passionate when it comes to lighting. Chris, for those people that may not know you as well as I've gotten to know you, Tell them a little bit. Who's Chris and how'd you get your start in this awesome lighting industry? A not too dissimilar story. Went to CU, had some great professors there and kind of went into the industry. You know, the short of it is, which I think I've said before, is it blends really nice aspects of science and art together, right? There's a lot of mathematics. There's a lot of science and iterative, you know, improvement in how we measure and calculate and kind of do things around the lighting industry, but there's also this kind of like subjective art nature of the whole thing. And the psychology is really important in the human factors. So I think a lot of people have been in this industry for like 20, 30 years and, you know, they're still learning stuff, which I think is super important. You know, that's one of my lifelong passions is learning. I'm a very curious individual and it definitely can drive people nuts when it's like, no, let's go figure that out. You know, like this isn't good enough. So that's what got me into it. That's what kept me into it. This isn't good enough. It's a saying people probably say all the time, whether or not they act on it is really what makes a difference. What operates change in the universe and is certainly something that I think people have taken a hard look at in our industry, um, really a lot of industries over the last couple of years as the world has shifted in terms of how everything operates. But when we sit here and we think through lighting, it's part of something that's bigger, right? It's part of a, a process. It's part of a building, a built environment, maybe an exterior environment. It all kind of boils back to the construction industry, the construction world, the construction process. We're a line item on a budget. We're a section and a big fat set of specs, yet we have so much ability as an industry, as a technology to influence how people experience that environment or that space. You know, when you look at construction today, what is present in that marketplace? What tools are being used or being created to be utilized Mm -hmm. that haven't been there before. Yeah, so I mean, I don't use BIM every day, 
my wife's an HVAC engineer, so she uses, you know, Revit. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people in the industry that use it, you know, on a pretty regular basis. And I think there's a pretty extensive spectrum of utilization of technologies like that. So you've got a lot of capabilities when you've got a lot of information and, you know, you can think of it as like just specifically data, right? So to take a, a high level view of like, what, what are you doing when you design a building? You're using your intuition and expertise into some sort of data format that other people can then act upon. So that's like the flow of information, right? You can think of this as like a flow of information. It's coming out of your head into some sort of data format and then into other people's heads so that they can act upon it, right? That's at a fundamental level, that, that's what communication is, right? So the more information you can get into a data format, such as BIM, you know, common format is Revit or whatever. Uh, Rhino is another program that, you know, essentially has similar capabilities and is used a lot more in the European market. Those types of technologies have the capability to do a lot of manipulation and a lot of workflow automation, right? So plugins like Dynamo or Grasshopper, and I think Grasshopper came before Dynamo. I don't know by how far, but Grasshopper is a probably described as a visual programming language for rhinoceros, which, which is short-term rhino or shorthand rhino um, is how it's commonly referred to in the industry. But basically, you know, rhino is a cat environment and Grasshopper is a visual programming language. And for anybody that's used Grasshopper, they probably talk about it with a lot of excitement. Right. So I've seen people create like bridges in what would commonly be referred to in the mechanical engineering world as parametric design. And Grasshopper kind of takes parametric design and algorithmic design and kind of puts them together. So imagine you have a bridge and you have to try to figure out like, you know, and at what interval do you put supports at? Right. Or at, you know, imagine you're doing like a lattice network on some sort of you know, like shade structure or something like that, or how frequently you need to put your, you know, steel beams and steel columns to support the load. That distance is your parameter. And the algorithm is doing the analysis on your building and helping to influence what that parameter should be. So to kind of come back and, and go through that thought experiment again, visual programming languages like Grasshopper, and like Dynamo are essentially workflow enhancements where you you have an idea of what you're trying to create in your head and you create the data structure in BIM and you use these visual programming tools to iterate and modify the design in a super rapid time frame, right? So I know that people utilize this, like I've utilized it on a variety of projects and in other roles besides what I'm doing right now. But that's a huge time saver and productivity enhancer that I don't think is utilized in a huge way. You know, I've talked to maybe a dozen or so, which is not a huge, you know, not a huge group of people about like how, you know, do they, what do they use Revit like and do they use Dynamo and like what does their electrical calculation infrastructure look like for buildings and stuff like that. And, and it seems to me that there's a lot of ability to leverage those visual programming stuff. Cause it's not like you have to write a bunch of complex code. You don't have to write a bunch of complex code because there's tools that build tools for you that then create custom things for yeah. lack of a better term. Like we're here in 2022. There's a lot going on in terms of how far computational technology has come to the point where the standard user can log on and build a website in an hour. Does that translate through when it comes to looking at something that's maybe a little bit more sophisticated than a website, like building a calculation tool or automating a certain otherwise manual process? 
Yeah, I think so. And and the corollary there between like building a website on Squarespace mm-hmm. or Wix or something like that, where you have this kind of building block that you drag on, right? This is a text block. This is a separator. This is a drop down. Things like that. Is, is you have these like building blocks. So. In these visual programming environments, it's still drag and drop. You have these blocks, right? And maybe that block is like array your light fixtures or array your beams or in a certain distance. And that's your parameter, right? But the array function is your visual programming block. So that's that's fairly analogous. Now, obviously, constructing a building has a lot more details into it. So it gets a lot more complex than, you know, your 12 things that you're going to put on a website, right? So you have like image text, title, button, link. But there's like a, a smaller subset on kind of like your build your own website on on a building. On though. a building. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot more of those blocks, right? But you also have a lot more disciplines. Mm-hmm. So, you know, imagine you don't need to understand all of, you know, your coworkers disciplines, visual programming blocks, right? There needs to be something that understands all that, but it doesn't need to be you. There's an opportunity yeah. for software to come and be a key player in that. And yeah. We've, and we've seen that try to come online with Revit almost, what, 15 years ago now? It's been around. Yeah. And then, you know, cloud computing, BIM 360, live modeling, so on and so forth. But these things, at a certain point, they've gone from ideas and stuff people have talked about to beta tested to being used and being used every single day. And we're sitting in an era where some of these tools are no longer just talked about. They're utilized every single day. Yeah, I just saw a visualization and what they rendered and simulated was temperature flow throughout a building. It's basically fluid dynamics being inserted into a visualization of of an entire building, right? So that has factors like solar heat gain, it has factors like HVAC temperature and where that HVAC is coming from, right? So it's doing thermodynamics and fluid mechanics across the building what was the purpose of that animation the purpose just so you can see like how efficient and where how efficient your building is and where you know thermal energy is either being introduced or lost but you could literally see it you can yeah yeah yeah, you're visualizing it so it becomes a design tool yeah exactly for not only the designer but the people the designer has to speak to yeah exactly maybe even and they may not, the, you know, the end user may not care, right? I mean, some of the times they just say, like, design me a good building. But I think having information like that is much more powerful and much more intuitive to humans than, like, spreadsheet format. So, like, you know, like, what's your thermal coefficients on this building? So, you know, like, a lot of people use the building envelopes, right? Like, how efficient is your building envelope? So you have, like, your windows and stuff like that. And it's going to give you some numbers about, like, how efficient is your building overall. But it's kind of like a distilled down thing. It's much more powerful to have those numbers along with visualizations to be able to quickly pinpoint where the problem areas are, right? Of course, you got to get the model to be as accurate as possible, which I think is a a big hindrance because sometimes you just don't have all the details and sometimes the details are changing quickly. But that's why that workflow automation is super important. I want to dive into the workflow automation just a little bit more. We have tools. They're here to, so to speak, promise us more efficiency in time. Yeah, They help us connect better across industry trades, maybe potentially even in a presentation to the design architect or the owner. But it all comes back to that ability to automate. There's things that are going on in automation, like intelligent design, machine learning. Talk to me a little bit more about what's being implemented into that space right now. 
Like on the machine learning side? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a machine learning expert. And that's a good indication of keep reading if you're listening. While you're not a machine learning expert, you have some experience and you understand the, the theoretical concept of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I've done some background in it and it, and do my best to understand the high-level concepts of, of what's going on with it. And, you know, there's a huge emphasis in other industries, mainly in kind of like the Silicon Valley industries, to utilize machine learning techniques and what some people may call, you know, artificial intelligence, which that line is not super clear anymore with new types of neural nets. And... I'm not 100% sure where machine learning is going to take the construction industry. You know, one of the things that machine learning algorithms are really good at is kind of accomplishing narrow scope tasks. But an example of where I have seen machine learning be very successful is on organic structural design. So like Fusion 360 has a plugin that was written that uses machine learning to remove as much material from a structural analysis as possible. You know, like let's say you had a building that was supported with like concrete, right? It would be able to tell you how to pour that concrete with while using the, the minimal amount of concrete on your columns as possible. Like what is the shape that does that? So I think that probably will be utilized in select segments of the industry. And I think because my expertise is in lighting, I can envision places where it will be used in lighting, specifically on the machine learning side. I want to talk more about that. The construction process, if we look at the cost of a building, there's certain budgetary items that cost more than others. There's structural integrity of it. There's all the glass in the building. There's other MEP trade equipment that needs to go in there, then there's finishes, and then there's lighting. And the electrical portion of a project is not necessarily the largest portion of a project. So when people look at innovating a construction process or a building or really anything, the answer is how can I save the most money the fastest, right? They've started with these big tools for the bigger portions of construction. Your example of concrete is a great one. Lighting is arguably not maybe next on everyone's list, but it's very close to the top of the list at this point, given the fact that there's been proven success that automating things not only helps innovate the way we build buildings and what we can design, but also the cost and the speed and the time that it takes to do all of this stuff. What's really interesting is the people that are doing that aren't your traditional roles in these companies. There's there's a new layer of people being added to every single company to develop software, to manage that software, to run that software across everybody's desk in the sense of I'm changing what your job is, right? Like just give me the parameters and I'll do the rest or just put the parameters in the software or maybe you don't even need the person to do it anymore. Robotic isn't the right word, but there's just a full automation stack that's basically being created to require people to become valuable in different ways. What's going on in, in the architectural industry in your perception that you've seen be implemented and where do you feel like that might take us next? So, you know, I've seen a lot of job postings recently on, as you say, non-traditional roles in construction companies, right? So a couple of examples here, you know, BIM managers are being hired on most firms. Most firms I know of have at least one BIM manager, if not multiple. Additionally, a lot of the bigger firms have their own internal tool software developers. There's, you know, like whole tech stacks that are developed internally for larger firms to be able to leverage. And 
you know, to kind of to discuss like what why this is happening, it's because it it increases productivity and it separates companies' ability to be profitable, or at least in my view, and I, I might be wrong on this, but if you're competing with a bunch of firms to bid for the right to design a project to be the engineer and the and the you know maybe architect, maybe you're all in one shop or maybe you're different. Like you still have to be competitive in the marketplace, like on your fee structure, right? So you have to figure out in a broad sense, what is the marketplace of designers and engineers doing, right? And if they're more profitable than you, and by profitable, I mean, I don't mean like, can they make more money, but basically can they be more productive with their fee? Because the fee is gonna be the normalizer. So if you can make that fee go farther and be more productive with the time, and leverage tools like what we've been talking about and certain aspects of automation, that makes you better, right? And so the hope is over time, and this will happen, is over time, like all these firms will get better. And one of the ways that they're getting better is by hiring these what would commonly be non-traditional roles. Like we're talking about BIM managers, software developers. You know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if in like somewhere in the five to like eight to, you know, maybe five to 10 year time frame people have in construction firms like GCs, they have, and this may already be going on, but they have people that are specialized in augmented reality. So as every day they walk a site with, there's a company up in Boulder called Trimble. They've got a technology called Connect, which plugs into Revit. You take your whole 3D BIM model and it projects it into where you are, right? So you put on a, an augmented reality headset and you can walk the site you can see where stuff is supposed to be. You know, you can see where walls and pipes and conduit and, you know, you can work with these different layers. It depends on what level of detail you've got in your model. But I think duct work is a good one, like where this is supposed to go and look for any interferences or look for where stuff is currently being constructed and look for problem areas that weren't caught in the design process. It's um, literally um, live coordination. Yeah, live coordination. Without actually physically having to realize, oh, my whole crew's here. This is happening. Crap. We're going to have to call someone. We're going to have to file an RFI. We're going to have to bill everyone for our time. It's just. So there's a common theme here, which is to stay, in a sense, able to react quickly and calmly. I emphasize that last part because that doesn't seem to be a a real, you know, common thing in the industry. You know, most like, oh, this is broken. You know, everybody freaks out. But if you can say, if you can identify problems without freaking out, Right. And we can train ourselves in the industry and and the partnerships between all the people that are going to be in the construction process to work together to address the problems that are happening. That's going to be a big win for the industry as a whole. And I think things like that augmented reality on site walks is will be very helpful. Right. And also you can do things like the augmented with with something like an augmented reality. And, you know, full disclosure, I've never used this connect. It's just an example. And and it's a good one, a good, obvious one of like, yep, this wall is built, right? This pipe is ran, right? So you can verify all this stuff. And, and especially when you go out to like do site walks and you're like looking at as-built plans. So maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago and the as-built plans are not what was currently built. If something got moved for some reason or another, like imagine the plan set is being modified on the construction site. So this was the original plan set. This is, you can modify, the contractor can modify the as built on the fly with augmented reality, right? So that's increasing accuracy, not only for what you're doing right now, but you can feed that information back to RFIs and and other aspects for the future. So reacting in a calm and quick way Right, I think is is going to be super important because I I do not think that's like the speed is going to like 
notch down. That doesn't seem likely. I would make uh, some form of an argument that if you can react quickly in both directions, it can almost establish that calm that doesn't exist, which is something that not only people would appreciate, but let's face it, makes humans feel better. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how all this applies directly to lighting. Maybe a little bit lower on the totem pole in terms of construction, but something that's rising very fast. Sound good? Yep. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, The Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to the architectural lighting industry. Built around the idea to create a single place to come to be inspired about lighting, to learn about lighting, and to share it with others, LightEye brings you a series of content from video production to this podcast. If you want to learn more, check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Chris and I were talking just a little bit more about lighting. Let's face it, something I love, something Chris is also super passionate about. He's had a pretty cool opportunity to actually build a tool that helps a rep and a contractor understand the feasibility of what a project might cost and what kind of lighting you might need without even having a design on paper to set that entire design process up for success instead of somebody just throwing a random number at the wall. It's one quick example that I know is close to your heart, Chris, because you put a lot of work into it. But talk to me a little bit more about some of those, quote, non-traditional roles or things that are potentially going to become an integral part of every business moving forward in the lighting industry. Well, I can speak to my own experience. You know, like I joined a rep agency, which I'd had some experience in talking to reps, working at Acuity, and took a chance at doing what I would consider a non-traditional role for a rep and pretty grateful that, you know, I was given that opportunity to see what, what you can change. You know, as we sit here and we talk about the construction industry, it's like, yes, you can imagine to the moon, right? But until you put the work in and kind of, you know, somebody's got to roll up the sleeves and, and kind of figure it out. Right. So that's one of the things that I've been working on over the past couple of years is, you know, how can we make the lighting portion of the rep and the construction and the electrical contractor interaction all the way from the design into procurement better. Right. And so it's hard to fix everything simultaneously. You know, it's not usually how it works. And there's a good quote where it's we overestimate what will happen in two years and we underestimate what will happen in 10 years. So if you if you think about that, it's like you're like, oh well, two years in two years, like everything will be different. It's like, no, that's that's not true. But in 10 years, we tend to think about like things won't have changed as much as maybe you could think. And it it's very different in 10 years. And I just want to pause real quick. If we think about 10 years ago today, that'd be 2012. 2012, yeah. Smartphones. Infancy. Barely. Yeah. Barely around. Something called Instagram. Forget about it. Yeah. I mean, household words yeah yeah so it just right. gone not even a, not not even people had smartphones and they thought it was cool they could check their email on a mobile device and that was it yeah and i mean like how ubiquitous are leds now in sort of light fixtures or something like that i mean and so if you think about the beginning of when leds came around to light fixtures you know there was kind of this thing about how like leds would completely take over everything and kind of the time frame that they thought about was like two to four years 
So it's kind of like a, you know, relatively short time frame. And it probably took like six or seven until fluorescents were just dead. Yeah, from right. 2010 when the first stuff came into the marketplace to about 2016. Yeah, something in that time frame, right? So there's like these bullish people that create a lot of you know enthusiasm around some new technology, and they and then people start to get excited, right? They start to imagine the possibilities, and so their perspective of like how fast things will happen is kind of short, and then all of a sudden like that doesn't really happen because it takes a lot of effort and a lot of people all working in the same direction to make some serious change. But over time, people just keep kind of grinding away at stuff, and it does kind of change. Anyways, this we're you know this is kind of a auxiliary topic, but you know, automated driving is this way too. And the first people thought that automated driving was going to be like figured out and like stuff like that. And there's always people that didn't think it would be figured out in five years. But when we look back across like the lineage of time, you go like, oh, well, it did take 15 or 20 years to get automated driving figured out, but it will be so good that we won't have steering wheels anymore. And I'll also point out just because something gets figured out doesn't mean people are ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most important things in all of this is the human factor. And whether we like it or not, humans are very predictable, but they're also unpredictable, right? Yeah, yeah, they can be both. For I, sure. I mean, I mean, humanity has this opportunity to just blow our minds, but like at the same time, we basically know what humans like, right? They like human interaction. They like to be comfortable. They don't like to be forced to change. So things do take time. They do for not only yeah. not only the reason that developing it takes time humans adopting it in a what I'll call um, manageable reactionary moment yeah in, in you know the past two years of the pandemic and humans being forced to change too fast is a great example of it is and yeah at first you're like oh my gosh well at least we have something we can do and then you're like well I really don't like that you know as an example people were really tired of video calls right yeah it, it, it the change happened too fast and honestly it probably wasn't completely thought through. Now it's still here, but it's in a different yeah. capacity. So it's important that as we look at our industry, as we talk here a little bit about lighting and what's changing to reflect on, um, I use the word dinosaur nature of, of the industry. Like a, a lot just didn't change for a long time and now everything seems to be changing at once, but realistically it can't all change at once and it won't change yeah, all exactly. at once. So yeah. there's, there's a playbook by the way, nobody wrote that playbook. Nobody knows what it is. But when we look back, like we look on back on LEDs over the last 10 years, it'll be obvious. So that's why this led to this, led to this, led to that. Yeah. And now we're here. Yeah. I'm so like 2020 kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so let's just, let's just walk through the theoretical dots a little bit here of where we're at, what's in the industry today in its infancy and what might be some things that we see next in you know, it's just Chris's opinion, but it's a good opinion. Yeah, so I mean, I was interested in trying to make some change and seeing where we could, right? So it has given me a good perspective to be at a rep agency because I see a lot more of the actual industry than I did at a previous role, kind of working as a, you know, like an innovation style engineer, like thinking up new stuff. And I hope that my intuition is right on this, but again, it may take longer than expected, is that I think there is a tide turn on digital controls, as an example. And so the concrete example is that I think Dolly is starting to gain traction. So Dolly's digital addressable lighting interface, I believe is the acronym. And 
you know, this makes tunable white a lot easier. This makes certain aspects in the lighting industry a lot easier. And another big aspect of Dolly that's super important is the ability to reconfigure your zoning in software rather than hardware. This to me is like the duh aspect of why we should be utilizing a digital control interface for our lights. Yeah, duh, Chris, but it, duh. you know, I don't that takes, <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's a duh moment, but it takes time to design. It takes, it's more expensive on the front end. There's all these reasons maybe what people, that people are going to come up with that they don't want to use it because the answer is no, actually it's just a little bit different. And yeah, it's a little you, bit different. All you got to yeah. do, all you got to do is welcome in that change and yeah. welcome to the competitive world of 2022 if you don't. Someone else will. Well, I, I would have thought that, you know, but the, but there's an industry standard of zero to 10 volt. And the benefit of that is it's analog and it's relatively cheap. But, you know, using a dolly interface is also quite cheap. Like you don't need like expensive processors and drivers to do stuff like that. It's polarity agnostic. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of benefits there. But I think the big one is this didn't get installed right, or there was a, a whoopsie on the sort of wiring diagram or whatever, it gives you the ability to reallocate what's under what control zone dynamically. And the emergency one is a big deal too. So anyways, emergency is always really hard with zero to 10 volt, right? And if you can simply use like what is standard in the Dolly protocol to like program the emergency level on the fixture as part of the emergency lighting system, I think that's a big win. It actually removes a lot of complication in hardware the uh, point, from, your from your design. The point is if you can just lay a foundation down and decide what it needs to do after the fact, it actually can create a lot of operational efficiency Yeah, and provide flexibility that otherwise literally does not exist. Well, it exists. We just maybe in the industry are not using it to the full potential. I'll give you an example. Like I, I commissioned a POE job and th the drawings didn't show switches in both sides of the conference room. So it was a large enough conference room to have two doors and there was only switches on one side. Well, that's obviously a little annoying if you're entering from the door that doesn't have a switch on, right? And, and this is programmed under new code for vacancy mode as opposed to occupancy mode, right? So you'd have to walk across the court, you know, the conference room to, to turn the switch on. So in that sense, with something like a digital control with some sort of backbone that you can program, you can add a switch and dynamically tell it what it's controlling. So on this POE job, you could literally add a switch anywhere in the building and have it control anything else in the building, which was super cool. And, you know, the whole job was commissioned in, you know, three hours as opposed to three days. I was going to say, as opposed to a, a lot more time. Yeah. And like you have like a whoopsie, it's an easy fix as opposed to like a really challenging, well, let me run the wires over here. No, this can't be done or whatever. So it's just, you know, flex, and that's, you know, you got to leverage the software technology that's already available. So I think that's one thing. Talk to me a little bit more about what's going on with lighting calculations. Yeah, I mean, this ties into kind of a bigger topic that maybe we want to wrap into like a multi-point kind of discussion here. But do you mind if I seg if I do, do a small tangent? That's fine. Okay. So when I joined VI, we had this issue of people bid projects on in a very in a very preliminary sense, right before drawings come out, usually it's with a narrative, just dollars per square foot. Just an owner trying yeah, to get a rough idea, yeah, a rough of idea. what the heck a building's going to yeah. cost. Yeah, and you know my experience is number one that that number is not accurate, could be off by fifty percent in certain certain scenarios, 
And number two, you know, could be improved. That was one of the things I started working on. And so one of the projects I've worked on in the past two years is developing an internal tool set that virtualizes lighting design. And and what I mean by that is it uses heuristics and kind of virtual layers of light to design a building with a distinct quantity of fixtures. Okay. So I'll give you a a real-time example. Like let's say you're going to do a warehouse. Now you could do a lumen method in a warehouse, right? And get 50 fixtures at 30 feet and 30,000 lumens on 25 by 25 or 30 by 30 spacing, depending, right? And you'll get somewhere between 30 and 40 foot candles, give or take. Rough numbers here, obviously. So that's that's like one layer of light. Another idea would be like, let's say you're in a lobby and you want to do like some pinhole down lights and maybe a couple of big pendants for some like visual interest in, in kind of the middle, you know, near a seating area or pendants on top of a, uh, a reception desk to create focal points and, and kind of like visual cues about what's going on in the space and how it's architecturally organized, things like that. So you can add those layers in in this internal tool set I've developed and it'll kind of populate that stuff. And, and then we can give that information at a very early stage to a contractor and say, when you're bidding this in the lobby, you're going to have 12 pinhole down lights. You're going to have three 40 inch wide pendants over the seating area. And you're going to have, you know, four small little mini pendants in a recess linear in the reception area. Right. And this is virtualized. We don't go through and lay this out. We just kind of tell it in a narrative sense, like I would like, you know, in a, you could write this out in a paragraph, just like you read it from a narrative. I would like pendants over the reception desk. I would like big pendants in the space. And I would like pinhole down lights in the, in, and this is all in the lobby. It'll take all the lobbies and, and apply that to it if you want. So what this does is increases the accuracy and speed at which you can get budgetary pricing. And it's not on a dollar per square foot because a dollar per square foot abstracts out too much information in my opinion. So the question was like, how do you accelerate that process without doing like a preliminary lighting design, but can just from a narrative, which may take you an hour to write, get a whole bunch of information and information to the electrical contractor. Because if they just say it's $5 a square foot, that doesn't really take into account like the type of space necessarily. It doesn't take into account, as an example, is 80% of your square footage clean rooms and corridors? Or is it like lobbies and stairways? And is there special equipment that's required? And so there's like a a dollar per square foot gives too much of an abstraction to, to get accurate, in my opinion. So we tried to figure something out. So for us, we use that in a budgetary sense. We mainly just utilize it to say, like, we think there's going to be about this quantity of stuff. And and we work with the the team members to give that bill of materials out as a quotation. And that's super helpful because it's not only taking something that's generic, like the Lumen method, or for lack of a better term, like an old school calculation that a calculator can do for you in 10 seconds today. It's not just theorizing around what one person may think the design actually should be. It's just taking a standard set of information and applying a somewhat specific set of parameters that can then be further defined. It doesn't cannibalize the process, it just aids the process. It gives a budget that's real. It gives a a quantity that helps people figure out what's it gonna cost to install and how much time is it gonna take. And then it also comes back to the designer and says, hey, your budget came from something that has real like lighting science behind it. Here you go. Here's a starting point for you so that you don't have to burn your billable hours and be told this doesn't work. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, 
you know, aspects that we try to improve by doing a process like that, right? So we can't influence everything, but we work with designers to try to let them know what we think a narrative will cost. And there's some, you know, there's some parameters that we can modify. Say like, okay, we'll use this type of equipment versus this type of equipment and stuff like that. But the point is there's a whole software platform that can be like, developed to do that and you can take real design data yeah and plug that into yeah. this this is all a tool around the question was you know chris what's going on with calculations in the industry right well maybe calculations now gets generic in a sense of we don't just calculate light levels in a space we start to calculate things beyond how much light is in a space I think you can apply this the way I do it is by heuristics, by kind of, you know, certain algorithms, certain rules of thumb, things applied in specific ways. I think once you can use BIM integrated calculation software, you can actually increase this. It's no it's not even like a virtualized lighting design anymore. It's like you can literally create algorithms to help you lay out a space quickly. You know, when listeners and when myself and think about like, well, how would you use that? We already do stuff in calculation engines that helps us lay stuff out. We do linear arrays. We do polar arrays. We do copy and paste over here. We, you know, in CAD, we say this is on 10 foot centers and stuff like that. So there's a lot of rules of thumb that we apply. Maybe we don't even think about, right? And if the calculation software that we begin to utilize really ramps up our productivity, it's going to be able to do things like classify a room as let's say it's a surgical suite and surgical suites are designed in maybe what two or three ways like there's a specific functionality and we figured it out right so apply this and you'll have your equipment that you want to utilize similarly like in an open office you can designate an area as an open office and you can say i want suspended four inch linears right boom done and take that and generate the cad immediately like this comes back to our workflow process automation, right? So don't actually draw the CAD and lay it out. Just tell the system that you want this area designated and have it have a placeholder in that location. So if you want to come back and change it for some reason in the future with your calculation engine that's integrated into your building design tools, you change that designation say, okay, well, we've decided not to do four inch linears or whatever. We're going to do dropped big pendants, right? So it's like an open office or something like that is the kind of thing I'm imagining in my head. And so instead of just doing linear lines of light that are four inches wide on 10 foot centers that are direct indirect, it's like throw some cool big pendants in there. We found some extra money in the budget because we're so awesome. And we're going to do that thing from that cool design firm that we like and, you know, put that in there. And so now you allow the calculation engine to automate the locationing of those things and you can input however many parameters that you want and it'll put those things in a location and since you have more we, we talked about like you know putting things into a data model since you have things like a room that has walls and a ceiling you can use rules of thumb and best practices to automatically say here's the height you can use things like what is the intensity and the target illumination for this type of room, like an open office or whatever. You could set that as a firm. You could say this open office, click on this area designator and say this is a lower light level open office. So it's only really 15 foot candles and we're using a lot of uh, task lighting. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's a 50 foot candle kind of open office. And so you can set that stuff and you can have it adjust the height and the lumen output and everything. And you can even 
have it generate the dimming levels, right? This is all kind of the power of the dreaming software world, but I can very clearly see how lighting calculations will get there. And I've already taken some first steps into how that could actually work. And so I th I'm, I'm confident that it can get there. And I think it will be a good thing. Um, and, you know, when I originally told people I was working on stuff like this the past couple of years, they were like, oh, you're going to automate lighting design. And I, I think that that's extraordinarily difficult. Can I just say, not only do I agree, but if you understand fundamentally what lighting design is, it's almost impossible to automate because there's so many factors yeah. in the design process. Now you can create automated tools to help lighting design go faster, Yes, but you're never gonna automate lighting design. You may automate parts of it, like you said, but I don't, But I, the process in general, I think, and, and we talked about why I got into this stuff is because there is a creative, psychological, and art aspect to lighting design. You know, there's a science too, and, and I get jazzed up about that too, but I don't think that you're gonna be taking away lighting designers' jobs, right? And I and No, I think, frankly, you're actually gonna create more and you're gonna make yeah. them, and you're gonna make them better at what they do because right. they're gonna become more profitable. So, you know, the argument is like, well, automation may take away jobs. And and I would say like, well, the usually automation will always go for the lowest hanging fruit, which is the stuff that people kind of do day in and day out and isn't that interesting. So as an example, laying out a warehouse, how many times do you want to lay out a warehouse? Oh yeah, all day long. All day long. Yeah, same parking um, lot over and over. Same parking lot over and over again. No, no one wants to do any of this stuff. Well, it is fun. And I think it's good to do a couple of times. You know, I, I used to enjoy the puzzle aspect of trying to get like, you know, high. Perfect uniformity. Yeah, perfect uniformity in, in, in parking lots because they can be different shapes and, you know, you got your different optic types and stuff like that. So that's an interesting challenge. But warehouses and open offices and stuff like this are... You know, if you're just going for general, broad, kind of decent uniformity, it's really cookie cutter. And so I don't think that that that's all that interesting. And so by utilizing tools, like we already utilize calculation engines, nobody does calculations by hand. I'd argue that a lot of people that do calculations maybe don't even understand how they're doing calculations, right? They just hit, they, they, they set hit it up go. and they hit go. Yeah. And they print it out and it's it's in a documentation that says like, I verified that this is supposed to be this light level, right? And so we use that as a productivity enhancer already. So I think thinking about aspects of calculation, lighting calculation tools that can help, that can even do more of that automation is a good thing. It will allow us to, as an example, spend, I don't, I don't see a lot of engineers um, in right now that are able to spend the time to think about conceptually what's going on because there's so much work to be done. They're so slammed to get a bunch of work out and complete the job, you know, and they're generally tight on fees and, and stuff like that in time, you know, deadlines are fast. So I think those tools are a necessary thing that we need to embrace and improve upon. I mean, that's what it all comes down to, right? The There's a certain fee that is applied to a construction project. It's interpreted one of many ways. It's sold thousands of different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's people coordinating and putting some form of documentation together that's then handed over to another set of humans that build buildings. We're not just going to come up with five times as much money in the world to do that process. What we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to figure out how to more effectively use our time and at the same time, do cooler stuff. Yeah, succinctly, spend more time on the cool stuff and less time on the, the mundane. So make sure that that kind of art design that you're working on 
or the, as an example, the circadian rhythm influence in an open office, like people will be able to look at the more complex aspects of lighting design because they won't be spending as much time on the simple aspects of lighting design. And I, and I think that's super important. And, you know, everybody's being asked to do more work in less time. There's obviously the, the super straightforward concern of like, well, you know, if we're doing this in less time or we're more productive, they're going to ask for lower fees. And that's a market-driven thing. So people are going to have to figure that out in the marketplace, like who wants to charge what for what. But, you know, I don't see a lot of people doing less. You know I, what I mean? I, I would agree. I would think uh, over the last, I'll just say five years, everybody's been asked to do more without do you think that they usually say yes to that well i don't think they get a choice Mm. i think i think a lot of people are being asked to do more and the answer is like hey this is just on your plate now and thanks or hey this is on your plate and if you don't want to do it someone else will and that can be you know internally from one desk to another but that can also be firm to firm i mean you you know as a business owner as a leader as a principal at a design firm you can choose to say no we're not going to do more for the same amount of money somebody else will and that that sort of sucks but you know it's become so competitive hyper competitive to the sense that people break off and they have lower overhead and they go do things but at the same time they're changing the way they they work they're investing maybe in you know software and technology instead of people and legacy companies across the board whether it's manufacturing whether it's design whether it's rep firms we're dinosaurs we're so people focused in this industry and driven and we operate around our own minds, which is honestly awesome because it makes it a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, we're the most expensive part of everything. And uh, the next generation of talent, the kids that are 18, 19, 20 years old right now, they just think differently. They work differently. What they think is optimization is different than what we think is optimization. They don't use that word. What word do they use? Somebody doesn't sit around and think that their life is optimized because they can see everything on Instagram live, but their life is totally optimized compared to like having to call your friends and catch up like we did. You know, they, they, their, their, their real world experience is just different. So they're naturally going to feel like the advancement or change in technology in the industry to people like us and older is actually completely normal to them. And what we do is foreign. So there's a, There's an adoption rate that we talked about a little bit earlier that has to run its course, but that's going to continue to run its course and that's going to continue to accelerate over the next five to 10 years as the people that enter the workforce have been consumed by tech adoption, right? I mean, tech drives everything today in terms of the efficiency and the nature of what goes on in just your world. To come into a, a professional environment and not have access to that will seem foreign. Or on the contrary, will demand that stuff like this gets developed and the young leaders will push it forward and the old leaders will either adopt it or they won't. Yeah, a lot of old leaders are, are you know, there's there's a couple of good examples of kind of the people in the general age frame of about 40 to 60 right now that are really pushing tech pretty far forward. Like they seem to be pretty forward thinking and and they're super willing to embrace what's next. I think that that's pretty refreshing. I mean, being able to embrace what's next is important, right? Everything in human life is on a, on a path of forward momentum. Everything becomes more efficient, looks better, operates at a scale that maybe have not been imaginable before. And Except yet- for printers. I cannot figure out why regular printers still don't work. <laughs> <laughs>
it's everything except printers. Chris, this has been an awesome conversation. I know that we, we bounced around a little bit early, but it's really insightful to me. And I hope to everybody that gets a chance to listen to this in terms of you know where we're at and really inspires people to think about what change can they implement or what can they adopt. If people have questions, if they want to continue this conversation with you, or they just want to give you a virtual high five, what's the best way to get in touch with Chris? Uh, email chris at lightallthethings.com. Chris at lightallthethings. If I go to lightallthethings.com right now, what shows up? Not much, I don't think. Uh, a bouncy ball just bouncing think, yeah, around the screen. It, yeah. yeah. It's a flashlight that just spins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, per- that's perfect. <laughs> chris, thank you so much for your time. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. See you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.